Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. Since the COVID-19 vaccine rollout began, media outlets, analysts, and journalists that identify as progressive, both in the mainstream and in independent media, have framed their criticisms of this controversial vaccination campaign and the big pharma profiteering therewithin, largely around concerns about vaccine inequity in the global South. To these voices, frequently seen featured in outlets such as Democracy Now!, Jacobin, and Common Dreams, among other progressive sites, uh, the criticism is is more or less like this. The chief manifestation of Big Pharma's corruption in the context of COVID-19 vaccines is their lack of vaccine sales to the global south, with those populations being eager for vaccines if only they were made significantly more affordable and available. Oddly, other forms of profiteering by Big Pharma related to this vaccination campaign, the role of the military in the vaccination campaign, and also blatant corruption within the FDA and NIH uh, are more often than not uh, treated as illegitimate criticisms by outlets that would normally pounce on the opportunity to expose corporate capture of regulatory agencies and all manifestations of the corporate profit motive, or perhaps another industry like oil and gas, for example. However, as myself and my guest today will be discussing, vaccine inequity is really a much smaller issue than a lot of these outlets and journalists have suggested. While the claim does remain a safe take, friendly to left-leaning sensibilities, even official sources have been forced to note in recent days that vaccine supply issues are hardly the main cause of low vaccine uptake on the African continent specifically, as there is a documented minimal interest in the vaccines from the continent's population, including a majority of its healthcare workers. Now, with the convenient emergence of the Omicron variant, calls are being made to have Western countries make a major push to vaccinate the vaccine-hesitant African continent. Joining me today to discuss these complex issues and more is Jeremy Lafredo. Jeremy, is a journalist and researcher based in Washington, D.C. He is currently a reporter for Children's Health Defense and contributes to both Unlimited Hangout and The Gray Zone. Last year, Jeremy and I co-wrote a series about the COVID-19 vaccination campaign and race politics with a focus on the U.S. And more recently, he has covered, alongside Max Blumenthal, the digital identity agenda behind the vaccine passport rollout. Great to have you on the podcast, Jeremy. Finally, it's been a long time coming. How's it going? Thank you, Whitney. I'm doing very well. All right, wonderful. So, as I sort of mentioned in this intro, just in the past uh, week, some mainstream media outlets have been publishing reports about how vaccine hesitancy, uh, as opposed to vaccine equity, uh, is is to blame for uh, the lower vaccination rates observed in Africa, uh, which they often refer to as the uh, least vaccinated continent. So, uh, one example of that comes from CBC News, which I believe is the state-funded, you know, official outlet of Canada, from earlier this week saying, vaccine inequity only partially to blame for Africa's low vaccination rates, experts say. Um, Quoting various people, including um, one of the main members of the COVID-19 task team in South Africa, saying that part of it is that the main issues are not really so much vaccine inequity, uh, but health system capacity and vaccine hesitancy. The article goes on to note, for example, that 40% of vaccines that have arrived on the continent uh, have not been used, and that's according to uh, the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, there, there's a quote in here from the president of uh, Namibia, 
saying that the the government there had to destroy 150,000 expired doses uh, because those who are eligible are, quote, refusing to be vaccinated. Um, And this has also been reported on by the Washington Post, some other outlets as well, um, and that um, it goes on to reference, um, in addition to that, that there's a lot of hesitancy um, from healthcare workers, uh, with only one in four of healthcare workers in the entire continent being vaccinated uh, or fully vaccinated, um, and that these healthcare workers in Africa uh, have declined to do so due to concerns over vaccine safety and adverse side effects, and that's coming directly from the World Health Organization. Um, and of course, this isn't exclusive uh, to Canada's uh, CBC News. Uh, this is also a story that was um, reported uh, at the end of November uh, in, in the Associated Press, republished by ABC News um, and a lot of other mainstream outlets. So um, now that vaccine hesitancy um, on the African continent seems to be uh, <laughs> an issue uh, of increasing, I guess, focus from uh, the mainstream media in the West, uh I know that you've done some a lot of extensive research on vaccine hesitancy in the African continent in general. So what are some past events that could have led to this situation we're now seeing on the African continent? Sure. So, yeah, hesitancy um, with vaccines is not a new issue in Africa. Uh, and, you know, this is quote unquote hesitancy. This is not a word that I would use. It's just, uh, you know, this is blatant resistance. Um, they aren't hesitant. They, they don't want it. Um, and there's several vaccines that have been administered um, on the continent of Africa that have had devastating effects uh, that are not um, given to any other continent. Um, And I'm assuming that the African people understand this. And when they're told that there's a brand new vaccine, um, they're very skeptical. Um, One of these vaccines is the DTP vaccine, the uh, diphtheria tetanus pertussis vaccine. Um, it's a bundle of three immunization shots given to virtually every child on the African continent. Um, but it's not currently administered in the U.S. Uh, or most other developed nations. And, you know, for a long time, as far back as 1977, um, the Lancet established that the risks of the whole cell pertussis jab, which is the, the P in the DTP vaccine, are greater than the risks um, associated with contracting wild uh, pertussis. So, um after mounting evidence linking the drug to brain damage, seizures, uh, and even death, the U.S. Uh, phased it out in the 1990s and replaced it with a safer version called DTAP, DTA, that did not contain the whole pertussis cell. But today, African nations are still being financially uh, incentivized to continue using the out-of-date, deeply dangerous DTP vaccine with Gavi, Gates' Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, making DTP a priority for African children. Um, A 2017 study funded by the Danish government actually concluded that there were more African children dying at the hands of the DTP vaccine than by the disease it's supposed to prevent. Uh, The the researchers uh, found that um, boys were dying uh, at almost quadruple the rate of those who had not received the shot, while girls suffered almost 10 times the death rate. So, of course, parents and children are seeing their friends, you know, getting these vaccines sent in by the West and the ones who get the vaccine are way less healthy than the ones uh, not receiving the vaccine. And this is you know, something that you notice pretty quickly if it's happening all around you. 
And um, another vaccine is the malaria vaccine, which it was just recommended uh, by the WHO that it be given to the entire African continent. But um, from 2009 to 2011, it's phase three clinical trials um, funded by the Gates Foundation and uh, manufactured by GlaxoSmithKline took place in Ghana, Kenya, Malawi, Mozambique, Burkina Faso, Gabon, and Tanzania. And um, in 2011, their own data showed that female children were dying from any cause um, at more than twice the rate of those in the control group. And children who received the vaccine also had a risk of meningitis that was 10 times higher than those who did not receive the vaccine. Um, and despite this, the WHO was still um, coordinating the administration of the vaccine to 700,000 children in these countries as part of, it called it a pilot, a pilot implementation. Um, and even the BMJ said that um, this pilot implementation um, process, it, it, it implies consent. Um, so it means that recipient, this is a direct quote, recipients of the malaria vaccine are not being informed that they are in a study. So now this vaccine is being recommended by the WHO. Gates is WHO. He's the you know number two or three funder um, to every child in Africa. So you know these are just two examples, and the examples go on and on. So when these people hear that there's a brand new vaccine from the West that you know skipped skip most of the safety processes, they're they're rightly skeptical. You know. Right. So I, I think there's actually a couple other vaccines sort of in the same model, what you described with the DTP vaccine in the sense that vaccines that are determined to be unsafe or unsuitable uh, for public use in the West um, are more often than not basically, um, you know, sent to the developing world where their use is incentivized uh, by groups like Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, which, um, as you mentioned, has a lot of ties to the Gates Foundation, and a lot of people frame them as a, you know, a philanthropic nonprofit. Uh, but if you look at their website, they make it very clear that their mission is not to uh, necessarily protect public health. It's about the health of vaccine markets. They're specifically uh, concerned about vaccine markets and creating uh, healthy conditions for vaccine markets. And this is the type of language um they use on their own website. And this is something that is not exclusive just to Africa. It also happens in Latin America as well. Um, uh, one example um, that you're probably familiar with, Jeremy, is the is the polio uh, vaccine, whereas in the, um, the polio vaccines available in the West use inactivated viruses. Um, but those used in Africa and where I live in, in Chile, for example, um, are live viruses. Uh, but even the WHO has called this out for being an unsafe um, uh, vaccine in the sense that it's causing polio outbreaks and it was determined not to be suitable for use in the West, but is being uh, widely used and has its its use incentivized um, in these other countries despite the risks. And obviously people aren't being informed um, of the risks. They're just added to like the childhood Im immunization schedules. At least that's how it is uh, here in Chile. And they don't exactly tell people that, um, you know, this is the polio vaccine for uh, the developing world and that the developed world has a different, safer version of this, you know, that that sort of gets left out of the conversation. Um, and, you know, a lot of the um, the groups, uh, including Gavi, that are incentivizing this use, you know, as I as I mentioned earlier, they're focused on finding markets for these newly homeless <laughs> vaccines that were previously used in the West. Right. So um, what's interesting, though, is, you know, in that in that context, um Chile, for example, is definitely not vaccine hesitant 
uh, when it comes to specifically the COVID-19 vaccine, but other vaccines as well, um, you know, despite this, but I would argue that has to do with a, um, a very big difference in terms of public trust in healthcare institutions um, and the media and the government in general. Um, and I think that's why, you know, uh, with in the case of Chile, they're the world leader in booster doses right now uh, in terms of a percent of the population, whereas Africa, um, you know, is the most uh, under vaccinated uh, continent in in the world to date. Um, but uh, I think, you know, in the case of Africa as well, in, con- in contrast to um, a country like Chile, you also have a lot of history with some of the big names involved with the COVID-19 vaccination campaign as well, like Pfizer having a pretty notorious uh, track record in Africa. I think in Nigeria specifically, where they had um, that particular trial that um, resulted in them being found guilty of a lot of malfeasance and having to pay out a a pretty hefty sum uh, to a lot of families that were lied to and uh, who's a botched trial there, I believe, in the 1990s led to a lot of dead kids. Yeah, of course. And during that same, um, you know, legal um, back and forth that was happening with Pfizer and Nigeria, Nigeria actually came out that they hired a private security firm to dig up blackmail on the attorney general of Nigeria to try to then get him to drop the uh, drop the case. Holy shit. So, of, of course, you know, those are not the people who are going to, you know, just come on in, Pfizer. Um, it's just not going to happen. They've been they've been crossed too many times. Yeah, it also makes you wonder, too, because um, while well, you're talking about, you know, uh, efforts of a corporation to sort of interfere through blackmail, um, you know, with uh, the, the functioning of, of a government in Africa. And there has been a lot of strange stuff, strange for lack of a better word, um, that's gone in Africa geopolitically uh, ever since March 2020, when the whole COVID-19 crisis started. And I think that might also be a factor potentially in, in some of this, quote unquote, vaccine hesitancy uh, being observed in Africa, because you have the case of, um, I don't know, for example, John uh, Magufuli, uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right, in Tanzania. Uh, you and I co-authored a piece about about him, but uh, pretty early on, you know, he sort of uh, did an expose, I guess you could say, of the PCR test um, and that, you know, a papaya and a goat and samples taken from things that weren't people were found to be uh, positive cases and called it out for fear mongering um, and and some other things And various uh, countries declined not to go into lockdown. But there were also a lot of very suspicious deaths, uh, not just Magufulis, of course, but you know, I think of a total of like six African leaders died sudden deaths in a very short period of time once the COVID-19 crisis began. Uh, and obviously, when you have that type of uh, uh, high death rate for politicians, considering the relatively low COVID death rate for the African politician as a whole, um, I think that could possibly lead to people being a little more skeptical of what um, is going on, because they're not just seeing, you know, this this talk of, of pandemic and vaccines and all of that. Uh, there's also major geopolitical shifts uh, happening. Definitely. Yeah, I became aware, I feel like, of the, the resistance to the COVID vaccine in the Global South while we were working on our investigative piece on the late John Magufuli um, of Tanzania. You know, he was framed as this crazy anti-vaxxer who didn't care about COVID, this and that. He declined lockdowns. He declined mass testing. He declined to order any COVID vaccines from COVAX. And um, during that time, 
as we noted in our piece, um, even the hawkish Council on Foreign Relations, who was calling for regime change in Tanzania at the time, um, admitted in their article titled uh, Tanzania's COVID denialism harms its economic future. They admit that, quote, Tanzanians agree with the government's light touch COVID approach. So I read that and I I thought to myself, wow, that's so wild. Here in the West, we're, we're being told, you know, he's dangerous, he's anti-vaxxer, he's this and that. But it's actually, he's just, you know, exercising the democratic will of the Tanzanian people who seem to not really buy the whole COVID narrative. They don't want the vaccine. Um, so to see the Council on Foreign Relations admit, even during a push for regime change in Tanzania, that most of Tanzanians agreed with him, that was um, that sort of made me realize how um, how Africans were, or Tanzanians specifically looked at the situation, and it opened um, the door for me to look further into how other African countries um, and what's happening there with the COVID vaccines. Well, from outlets like the CFR and, and groups like that, when they when they call for regime change in in a country, you know, and they even you know they'll make similar arguments to, to that, right? Uh, and people normally at like progressive media or anti-imperialist media, however. Uh, they they tend to define themselves these days, I guess, uh, usually catch on to that kind of stuff. Like, oh, he's doing what the people want. Isn't it weird that the CFR is calling for regime change, but instead we've had a lot of um, voices that would normally be skeptical of of these <laughs> uh, calls for regime change. Uh, of course, this is before Magufuli died under very odd circumstances. Um, but they're sort of, you know, backing this whole narrative in, in the case of him, uh, you know, that he was, a, um, you know, a bad leader and was uh, hurting his population. But he's actually, uh, you know, had had the support of his um, of his domestic population. And, and even uh, the the new president, who was his vice president, who's who's taken over since. I don't think she uh, has really even gone that far uh, in terms of implementing strict covid policies, uh, covid related policies, either because uh, it's not supported by uh, the population there, right? Which I think is is pretty significant. Um, but turn, turning back to the vaccine and equity discussion, you know, if the issue, as is being admitted now, is really more about vaccine hesitancy than vaccine inequity, um, it's it's kind of odd that there's this push coming mainly from the progressive side uh, to basically flood Africa with vaccines that is now being admitted they don't want. It's almost sort of like, well we uh, know what's best for you is, is almost sort of implicit in that. And it's, it's kind of an odd stance to take because in other circumstances, um, these same outlets would not make that argument. Or even a couple of years ago, in, in a different context, wouldn't it be making that argument? It would be deemed, I would think, right, sort of colonialist, imperialist to say, I know what's best for uh, this country in Africa, even though I'm a, a person living in New York City or something like that, right? Of course. And it's not even I know what's best for this African country or that African country. It's I know what's best for this African country. And what's best is Pfizer, you know, in a, a multinational corporate conglomerate um, with, you know, billions and billions of dollars of, you know, criminal settlements. So it's not even that they're saying I know what's best. You know, I, I know they, they need, you know, clean water there. It's, it's no, I know they need, you know, this this product. Um, that is super profitable. Um, so that is very ironic to see that type of dialogue happening on on what 
we would normally consider the anti-imperialist uh, lab. Well, it, it's even more ironic in the in the context of booster doses. You know, you recently had uh, Jacinda Arden of New Zealand basically say this is a vaccine uh, campaign that's never going to end. Uh, you know, we're in various countries having the rollout of the booster dose and countries far advanced with the booster dose. Like Chile and Israel, plans are already being made for a fourth dose. Uh, various places have essentially admitted that this is going to be a multi, you know, a, several times a year, potentially every three months, right? So um, once you get a country, uh, you know, heavily vaccinated, I guess you could say, and you introduce these vaccine mandates or these vaccine passports in order to maintain those privileges, you have to have uh, constant booster doses. I mean, there's an obvious profit motive there. Uh, for for Pfizer, Moderna, and a lot of these other um, companies, because it's you know the the billions and profits they've seen over the past year uh, is something that they can count on for decades, potentially forever, as opposed to just having it be a one year boost to their stock price and profits. I mean, obviously, it's in their interest uh, to advance that, and it's it's weird that it's been essentially ignored. The uh, great controversy within both the FDA and the CDC about the need for booster doses. Uh, in the U.S., which, you know, you would assume would point to this being um, not so much about science and being significantly uh, influenced by this profit motive. Um, And, uh, you know, if you're looking at it in in that context, it definitely is uh, weird to want to sort of rope in um, uh, Africa, I guess you could say, which which is under vaccinated. Because essentially, you know, it was even admitted by the Associated Press uh, not that long ago, right? I think a couple weeks before the emergence of the Omicron uh, variant that academics and scientists were baffled at how uh, COVID isn't really a problem in Africa. Essentially saying that, you know, there's low cases, there's not a lot of disruption uh, to daily life, and there's a, you know, it's the least vaccinated continent in the world. You know, what's going on here? So, you know, (laughs) these, these continued pushes... To, to sort of flood the continent with vaccines when COVID's not really a problem there. I mean, it just, there, there's some things that should be, you know, bringing, you know, bringing up some questions uh, for some of these people, and, and it's increasingly not. Um, and I find that uh, personally a bit alarming. Yeah, of course. And they even in that same AP article, I believe they mentioned that, you know, it's, it's the most under-vaccinated continent in the world. But at the same time, um, it appears on the WHO's uh, least affected um, list by the pandemic um, week after week after week. It's on this list that names the places that are least affected by the pandemic. And here, right at the top of the list, you have the place with the least vaccines. So, you know, you'd hope that that raises, you know, some questions because it, it definitely did for for me. Um, and, you know, these same progressives who are going to get their booster and talking about, um, you know, vaccine inequity. Why are you getting more vaccines? You know, these people are so unbelievably frightened of the COVID from all of the propaganda that they haven't been able to to think very clearly, um, I think. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to hope that's the case um, as to why these, um, you know, uh, pushes are being made from that specific uh, side, I guess you could say, of the political spectrum uh, within independent media. Um, I really hope it has to that that that's why and not something potentially more nefarious. I mean, maybe it is from, you know, some of the bigger name, uh, bigger names pushing this, perhaps. But 
Um, yeah, I think the uh, impact of, of the fear, I mean, obviously you're not going to be thinking as uh, rationally um, about, you know, uh, the, the whole, the, the long-term consequences of this and the um, all the different aspects of this sort of thing if you're afraid, right? Because obviously that reduces uh, the, the amount of time you spend thinking about the ins and outs of something. If you're afraid, you tend to be more um, impulsive um, and also more receptive to um, you know, we have to do something and this is the solution. But, um, uh, if you look at a lot of, you know, the outlets, um, or at least the origin sources of a lot of these vaccine inequity claims originally, you know, again, we see the, the head of Gavi being one of the main voices quoted in articles and that going back, uh, since the vaccine rollout mm-hmm. uh, for COVID-19 really began. And, and again, this is someone who's tasked with, uh, protecting the health of vaccine markets so obviously, you know, uh, they want a market for uh, COVID-19 vaccines in Africa, in despite of the fact of, of what the population has um, actually been willing to voluntarily uh, do. And that's why this emergence of um, the Omicron variant, I find very interesting. Uh, so this was actually, uh, I believe, admitted first... <laughs> In a New York Times article, there might have been someone in independent media that saw it uh, sooner, but I uh, saw it first in the New York Times in an article published on December 1st. Um, It opened the article, which says, Africa, comma, far behind on vaccines. Every other continent is ahead. Uh, Starts with uh, the first sentence. It says, last week, just days before scientists discovered the Omicron variant, South Africa's government asked Johnson & Johnson and Pfizer not to make some planned deliveries for COVID-19 vaccines. Um, And this had to do with, uh, as they say below, it was because of vaccine skepticism. Yeah. Um, And then the Omicron variant is announced. There's lots of fear-mongering around it, even though officially, uh, the astounding thing is is that officially um, it's been attributed to zero deaths. Um, I don't know about how many hospitalizations, but it's been being widely described, including by the people in South Africa who first identified it as being extremely mild. A lot of the cases that have been reported on um, or discovered of the Omicron variant are taking place not just in double vaccinated people, but people also uh, with the booster dose. Um, So I think that's um, worth noting. Uh, But as soon as the Omicron variant um, was reported on, um, there were a lot of changes. So first of all, in South Africa, uh, South Africa's government, uh, which had previously rejected vaccine mandates, began considering them because of Omicron, the Omicron variant specifically, uh, with that being reported on uh, by CNBC uh, by December 2nd. Uh, but then subsequently, uh, pieces in, in Politico uh, said uh, Omicron raises concerns about global vaccine equity and hesitancy um, and basically saying um, that the Omicron variant's emergence is because the va- African continent is not sufficiently uh, vaccinated. Um, and it has a quote from uh, near the beginning from the CEO of Gavi, uh, Seth Berkeley, saying, we will only prevent variants from emerging if we are able to protect all of the world's population not just the wealthy parts. Um, and this was also, this argument was also seen um, in ABC News, which said, um, oh, I guess it's an Associated Press piece republished by them. Uh, but uh, the headline is, Omicron brings COVID-19 vaccine inequity home to roost, that essentially the lack of 
uh, vaccination on the African continent, which is now being admitted to be largely due to vaccine hesitancy and not so much uh, vaccine inequity, is a global threat. Uh, this is a quite a significant uh, shift, but it seems to be focused around wanting to uh, provoke uh, political changes in Africa as it relates to things like um, vaccine mandates. And some of these um, articles I just mentioned mention that um, specifically, but there also seems to be sort of this a suggestion that the vaccine hesitancy uh, observed within Africa is now a threat uh, to the entire world. Uh, and this is all being based off of, you know, the Omicron variant, which, as I mentioned earlier, has officially, officially killed no one. Your thoughts? Yeah. So um, to people who were following, you know, what was going on in Africa in terms of the COVID-19 uh, push COVID nineteen vaccine push. Um, many countries did not were not taking it and did not want it, and so I'm sure that they saw this early on and they you know decided to kind of pivot from a um, we need to send the vaccines to it's a national security issue if they don't take the vaccines. Um, you know, so just this is Reuters from um, a few months ago. Um, this is a quote from Reuters. It says, There's our, there are fears in the Ivory Coast that vaccine doses will go unused. Reuters observed vaccine centers, quote, in densely populated areas with health workers sitting idle with no patients. And this is an entire Reuters article about how nobody wants the vaccine. So it was uh, there's a lot of great info. In it. And it says in the, in the Congo, um, 10 days into their vaccine program, only 1,300 Congolese, Congolese people out of 85 million went out to receive their COVID vaccine. And the government went on to um, return 1.3 million doses to COVAX. So that's from a Reuters article um, right there, like several months ago, saying that people in all of these countries don't want the vaccine. Um, meanwhile, here you had, you know, lines down the block um, to get the vaccine. Um, and those same people were saying we need to send them to Africa. Um, and then you have Bloomberg um, reported uh, over the summer that uh, Burundi's democratically elected government. And I think they had a, a interesting suspicious death change of government in the middle of COVID. Yeah. Um, Burundi's democratically elected government. Um, they said that the vaccines quote, aren't fully effective and long-term side effects are not understood. Um, and, and that we don't want vaccines, which are still quote at the experimental stage. Um, and then they were offered, um, an IMF aid package, um, a hundred million dollars or something like that. Um, but it must have stipulated that they will take vaccines. So they took the IMF package and the day after they agreed to allow COVAX vaccines into the country, Gates's COVAX into the country. Um, but it would seem that they accepted the vaccines for the aid money and only that because um, 3,000 doses have been given in Burundi, but they've received 500,000 doses of China's Sinopharm vaccine and 2.4 million doses of the J&J vaccine. So that's over three million doses of vaccine that they have and only 3000 doses have been given so we can assume very high um you know quote unquote hesitancy in burundi well that's uh, if i can just interrupt you for a second it's interesting you bring up the imf um because there was a claim i think from the leader of of belarus that he was offered yeah. an aid package uh by the i believe it was the imf it might have been the world bank but you know there's similar institutions at the end of the day um uh, to basically implement uh, lockdowns and, and other uh, COVID-19 related policies in exchange for aid money. 
Uh, there was claims also that a uh, a shift in COVID-19 policy from Russia uh, was connected to an IMF aid package that was uh, negotiated just days before that move uh, was announced. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, her name is Christina Georgieva, um, the head of the IMF right now, who's also on the board of trustees of the World Economic Forum. Um, she's made several speeches um, over over the past uh, several months, essentially saying um, that uh, the vaccine program is directly uh, related to uh, prospects for economic recovery um, and that there won't really be an economic recovery from COVID-19 until the world is fully uh, vaccinated. And that's sort of in some ways similar to this this argument that the world uh, won't be safe from variants until everyone is is fully vaccinated either. Yeah, from from the um, the head of the IMF during a speech, she said um, she said vaccine policy is economic policy. That's the and, quote. Yeah, and it was you know it kind of sounds like a threat when you're the IMF and you have so much control over the economies of these poor countries. Um, so you know that's very interesting. And uh, you also have Haiti, um, you know, which is a country that has been treated horribly by the U.S. and related health and medical NGOs. They sent back their Moderna vaccines um, a couple months ago because they weren't being used because there was low demand. So um, these countries that historically have been, you know, uh, colonized feel, you know, they feel that the, the, va- the COVID vaccines are just an extension of, you know, U.S. imperialism. And. Um, you know, they might have a point. Uh, USAID has made, uh, you know, vaccine uptake, you know, a giant um, priority. And then you have this survey, which I saw recently um, from Afrobarometer um, from over the summer. I just saw it, though. Um, which, and it looked at the opinions of the pandemic and, you know, quote unquote hesitancy um, in Africa. And the findings were, you know, very interesting, especially considering this whole vaccine apartheid narrative that we're talking about. Um, It surveyed Benin, Liberia, Niger, Senegal, and Togo. And um, only 9%, only 9%, so that's less than one out of 10 people, um, of Senegal sees themselves, quote, very likely to try and get vaccinated for COVID-19. 86% of Niger believes COVID will not be a serious problem or not be a problem at all over the next six months. And 77% of respondents in the five African countries surveyed believed the exact same. Um, And it also found that 79% of Senegalese people and 66% of Liberians consider it, quote, highly unlikely that they will try to get back. And um, one last thing from this survey was 83% of Senegal, 78% of Liberia, and 62% of Togo, quote, did not trust at all or trust only a little the safety of the COVID vaccine. So... You know, while we have people in Brooklyn, you know, taking Ubers to the Pfizer headquarters to organize, you know, these die-ins where they lay dead on the ground, um, which is supposed to, you know, it's almost a form of blackface. You're acting like a dead African um, saying, you know, these are this is what's happening in Africa if you don't send over more vaccines. When actual Africans are, you know, rejecting the COVID vaccine in, in mass. You know, these numbers are stunning. The The hesitancy in these countries is way, way higher than the hesitancy that we see in the West. So um, a pretty prominent anti-imperialist journalist, like in the alt media a couple months ago, um, 
she had a tweet that she sent that went pretty viral, and it sort of encapsulated the mainstream narrative where she claimed that vaccine hesitancy is a privilege of the global north. Um, and everyone was like, oh, that's so true, it's so true. You know, people in the in the U.S. who won't take the vaccine are, are selfish. There's people in Africa who can't even get a vaccine, which isn't true. Um, but it's... Uh, you're just seeing more and more that this hesitancy, which is apparently a privilege in the global north, is actually much more um, prevalent in the global south, and uptake is much higher here, especially well, where I am, at least in the United States. Well, I, I think there was there was also before this relatively recent shift, admitting the extent of quote unquote vaccine hesitancy in Africa, there were some efforts uh, to claim uh, or or to create the perception in the West that um, there was actually a high demand for the COVID-19 vaccine in Africa. Um, I think I originally saw this because it was put out by, um, I think, on Aaron Matei's Twitter. Um, I could be wrong on that, um, but it was it was essentially saying, uh, making that claim. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, you responded and, and noted that um, that particular study was uh, <laughs> uh, financed uh, by, I believe, uh, Bill Gates' affiliated uh, entities. Yeah, so it was this study that I appeared, uh, I could be wrong, I believe it's The Lancet, and it was widely, widely shared um, as, you know, scientific proof that, you know, Africa is highly willing to, you know, take these vaccines. And um, you know, it was shared by all of these public health professors and, you know, all these influencers and also Aaron Mate. Um, and you look at the study and it wasn't only, you know, funded by Bill Gates, but um, the study itself was funded by Bill Gates. But where they got their numbers from um, were from organizations, three different organizations um, that were all funded by Bill Gates. So it was funded by Bill Gates in like four different ways. And it was, it was being shared by these anti-imperialists and leftists as, you know, scientific proof of something. And, you know, of course, we all know that Bill Gates is no, you know, medical professional or scientist or researcher or any of those things. And he funds things, you know, to get his point across. Yeah, well, I mean, before he was a quote unquote philanthropist with the launch of his foundation and I guess it was 2000 to, or 2001, uh, he was palling around with, uh, you know, this one lady that's currently on trial, Jocelyn Maxwell, uh, <laughs> uh, Jeffrey Epstein, uh, a fun crowd, you know, and was also under uh, investigation by the U.S. federal government for uh, violating antitrust laws. Um, you know, uh, he didn't exactly have the uh, the PR appeal uh, that his quote unquote philanthropy has afforded him. Uh, today, but it's worth noting, uh, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, uh, Jeremy, because I know you've done um, some pretty extensive reporting on on Bill Gates, is that he frames, uh, or has in the past, framed his quote-unquote philanthropy um, around, you know, returns on investments. Um, and he's pretty explicit about a sort of identifying his um, philanthropy as related to in investments and in, in, in return on investment specifically and has said in the past that vaccines is one of the best ways to maximize your philanthropic return on uh, investments. And I will just make a quick note that that particular 
line of philanthropy. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein was very central in the development of that, uh, both through his involvement with the the Gates Foundation, the Clinton Foundation, but also some sort of um, tangentially linked figures and their uh, philanthropic uh, shifts uh, during that same period, 2000, 2001, when when those previous uh, foundations uh, were launched, like the Milken Institute, um, you know, also sort of take that approach to philanthropy as well. And it was deemed philanthropy 2.0 by the media at the time. But they, you know, uh, it was also noted that it's not really philanthropy. It's a way of essentially uh, doing business as usual, but framing it as philanthropy. So you get a PR boost by essentially uh, engaging in the same sort of predatory uh, corporate uh, behavior in the case of Michael Milken, uh, corporate raider behavior uh, that these people have, um, you know, uh, been doing for a long time. And it's worth noting also that Epstein's own foundations were launched in that same time period as well. Yeah. So um, I believe it was, I believe it was a, a CBS interview where he said outright, like you said, that his return on investment with vaccines is unlike anything else that he invests in. It's 20 to one um, yeah. ROI. So that's wild. Um, and kind of lets you know where his priorities are. It's not how many lives he's saving this or that. It's, it's just a good investment. And the reason that it's so ironic that you have the anti-imperialist left and the left um, asking for more vaccines to be sent to these places is because, you know, it's Bill Gates's COVAX um, that facilitates that. And um, it was originally set up by Gates in the beginning of COVID, and it's, quote, a worldwide initiative aimed at equitable access to COVID-19 vaccines. Um, you know, it sounds awesome. So how it works is rich countries listen to the calls of, you know, the progressive left and um, to end the vaccine apartheid. And that essentially manufactures consent for them to take billions in public funds and tax money and hand it over to Gates's COVAX, who in turn hands it over to Pfizer, who then gives COVAX vaccines for our tax money. Um, and then they bring them to, to poor countries. So Pfizer makes a lot of money from this Gates scheme to bring vaccines to the global south. And it's only really allowed through, I mean, like it, it gets public support through these calls by the so-called anti-imperialist left or the, you know, leftists to fix this vaccine inequity problem. And it, it just sends public funds into Pfizer's pockets. Um, so ending vaccine apartheid is actually, you know, it's just business as usual. It's just taking public funds and giving it over to the pharmaceutical industry, which is, uh, that's not progressive. I, I just find it an, an interesting name. Interesting that they 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 refer to the vaccine alleged vaccine inequity issue as vaccine apartheid. But you know, it's um, I mean, it's it's a much larger part of the equation than previously acknowledged. Now it's that's being openly acknowledged by mainstream media. So how can you continue to go on claiming it's apartheid if it's you're you're depriving people of something they don't want? Um, you know, it, it it's just kind of um. I don't know. It seems almost like a a, a marketing <laughs> uh, a ploy in in, in a sense. Um, it's very disappointing uh, to see, especially in the context of things like um, I don't know vaccine passports that definitely have much more um, similarities to an apartheid style system. Um, 
No, not necessarily in terms of, you know, between the global south and the global north, right? But within societies, um, you know, that, that, you know, these same people saying vaccine inequity is, is vaccine apartheid uh, don't really see uh, the issues in, <laughs> inherent within a vaccine passport system. And, and there have been claims from, I think it's the, uh, the state of Edo, Edo, uh, in in Nigeria, uh, that said, uh, they've had uh, different leaders there say uh, or attempt to increase um, vaccination rates by claiming you won't be able to uh, access banking services, uh, you won't be able to attend church and other things uh, without the COVID nineteen vaccine, and people there continue to uh, resist essentially. But it's um you know why wouldn't they <laughs> uh, call out that particular um. Uh, I don't know. I just think the terminology uh, that they're trying to use it for is uh, is sort of misplaced, especially in the context of what's now being openly admitted here. Um, but some, but before we get more, because I know there's a lot, <laughs> of course, that we could say um, and should say about the vaccine passport uh, angle to all of this, because I think it is uh, it definitely does sort of uh, answer the reason as to why the focus is is so um, explicitly on um, vaccinating the whole world, <laughs> you know, ID 2020, I digital, digital ID and all of that we can get into later, which, you know, obviously has a lot of connections to Gavi, um, as, as well. Um, but before we get there, um, sort of what I was mentioning earlier in these recent articles, uh, from Politico and ABC News and the Associated Press, um, about Omicron raising concerns about Africa's vaccine equity and hesitancy problems, there's sort of this, um, implication in these articles that uh, the fact that Africa isn't uh, has low vaccine uptake, that it's voluntary uh, under voluntary conditions when it comes to taking the vaccine, there's low vaccine uptake, uh, that this is essentially a threat uh, from the from Africa to the rest of the world. Um, and uh, I find that a little bit alarming because some of the people that have been really big in promoting um the vaccine inequity narrative, um, like Democracy Now!, for example, um, on December 7th, uh, they featured a woman uh, who wrote an article in a Vanity Fair called Catherine, uh, Catherine Aben, I believe is her name. Um, and she was essentially saying the problem is shifting from not enough doses, i.e. vaccine inequity. Vaccine inequity isn't the problem anymore. She's saying now it's not enough support on the ground to administer doses. Talking about this plan from the um, Biden administration to increase uh, global vaccinations that's apparently stalled. So this is apparently the one of the, fo the, the focal points of this Biden plan is to get more support on the ground to administer vaccine doses in Africa. Um, this really concerns me because... <laughs> Who does Biden want to send to Africa uh, to administer doses to a vaccine-hesitant uh, population? Any ideas? <laughs> I don't. I, I don't want to get carried away there, but it definitely seems sort of like a um, a way for Biden to uh, sort of uh, push through longstanding uh, efforts from the U.S. national security state uh, related to uh, Africom. Uh, yeah. U.S. military presence in Africa, which has really been exploding uh, over the past several years. And given the heavy involvement, for example, of the U.S. military 
and the U.S. domestic COVID-19 vaccination campaign, it definitely wouldn't be uh, that weird. And my question is, what outlets like Democracy Now!, if that was actually proposed? I mean, are we at a point where they would be essentially cheering that on? I mean, seems pretty wild to me, but really not that far-fetched anymore. It definitely seems wild, but um, Democracy Now! has, you know, if it's under the guise of public health or humanitarian aid, um, and they push that hard enough, I don't think Democracy Now! would have a problem supporting it. And um, there's a a researcher, um, Jake Levitch, uh, he wrote about how the Ebola crisis was used by the U.S. military, and it, it goes along exactly with with uh, with what you just said. He said the Ebola crisis offered useful cover for a substantial escalation in U.S. military presence, calling Ebola a quote top national security priority for the United States in September 2014. The White House authorized the deployment of 3,000 troops to Liberia, Sierra Leone, Nigeria, and Senegal under Africom command more than doubling U.S. military presence in Africa and simultaneously establishing a new military base in Monrovia. So it, it wouldn't be the first time that we sent, you know, AFRICOM troops into these countries, um, you know, boosting our military presence in Africa under the guise of not only public health, but pandemic. You know, this, was, this happened just with Ebola. And I'm, I'm sure they have not forgotten that they've already used this before. Um, and it, it worked. They, they doubled U.S. military presence in Africa um, under the guise of Ebola. And to- Tony Blair just wrote a piece, actually, in The Telegraph uh, this week, um, where he explained that um, Africa does, in fact, have enough doses. He, he explains that it's not, it's not lack of vaccines. Um, but the problem... Uh, that is a national security or health risk is the fact that they aren't taking them. Um, you know, the idea that they're not taking them. All right. Tony Blair says free Africans free will is a threat to national security. And so essentially that exactly that's promising Jesus. Okay. And then you have, um, you also have the former Biden administration, senior COVID advisor, uh, Andy Slavitt, who has like a vaccine in his um, Twitter name. He's become like a kind of a COVID influencer on the internet. Um, He said he does these crazy long uh, COVID threads that get tons and tons of engagement. And um, he said, uh, I guess it was last month, um, he called for a troop invasion essentially of Haiti and Africa under the guise of public health humanitarian aid, um, you know, to like vaccinate people. Um, he said that we've thankfully pulled our troops out of Afghanistan. It may be time to send them to Africa and Haiti to assist with vaccination efforts and saving lives. That's someone who literally came from the White House is speaking like this. And I can't, you know, it's very rarely that troops are going anywhere to save lives, especially Africa and Haiti. Yeah, well, if the issue was vaccine hesitancy, right? And yes. and as you mentioned earlier, several of these countries see this as an extension of Western imperialism, and that is potentially likely a factor for the vaccine hesitancy. How the heck is sending U.S. troops or foreign troops into those countries going to reduce vaccine hesitancy? Yes, it's. I mean, it's, it's something that they've made clear they don't want the vaccine. So if we're sending troops there to 
are we are we forcing it into their arms with U.S. soldiers? Like, what is you know, what are the troops doing? Um, we've already made clear in the Reuters piece that in the Ivory Coast, you know, obviously this is just one of many countries, but it's a good example that you know the vaccine centers in densely populated areas, um, health workers are sitting idle with no patients. So, what do they need U.S. troops for? They're just they're they're already sitting idle with no patients. Um, so I, I don't know what the U.S. Yeah, it's either it's either cover for other un- operations unrelated to COVID-19 um, or it's something pretty freaking nefarious. Though, you know, the first case is actually probably pretty likely, uh, you know, as we wrote about in our in our article about John Magufuli of, of Tanzania, there's a lot of interest specifically about um, these these minerals for the the green well green revolution was the gates funded monsanto imperialism and in india and stuff but you know i guess the green energy uh revolution with like lithium-ion batteries and electric vehicles which are predominantly going to be used in the west but the minerals are coming from uh, south america and from africa there's a limited supply of those and you have a uh, cobalt metals for example which is uh not just bill gates it's a uh, jeff bezos mark benioff uh mark zuckerberg reed hoffman you know the the big you know silicon um, valley billionaires essentially saying we need all of the world's cobalt all of the world's nickel all of the wor- world's lithium um in order to do this and and that specific company plans to tap into um as many of those reserves as possible um, and Africa is, is huge for mining, uh, as, a, of course, are the Andes in, in South America, uh, where a lot of the lithium and copper is, but a lot of the world's cobalt and nickel is in is in Africa, whether uh, I think uh, Congo is one of the main uh, uh, countries uh, involved with, uh, with a lot of the world's uh, nickel mines. Uh, Tanzania, uh, Magufuli got in trouble uh, right before his disappearance, actually, uh, because he had nationalized uh, the largest uh, nickel uh, ready-to-mine nickel deposit um, and taken it away from Glencore and Barrick Gold um, and instead gone into a joint venture with a, a separate company uh, where the Tanzanian government was actually going to make some profit off of it instead of having all of the profits um, go to uh, foreigners and, you know, the Tanzanian people be left with nothing, which is <laughs> the historic model uh, for the mining industry in, in these places, um, you know, the profits don't really stay in the country and they don't benefit the local population. Uh, so if this happens, uh, it, it could be one of the driving factors is to sort of, uh, maintain control of these, uh, mining deposits that are deemed essential because a lot of this has to do with this artificial intelligence and fourth industrial revolution arms race, um, between the U.S. and China, with China having a lot of um, advantages economically in terms of its relationship with um, governments in Africa and also South America as it relates to uh, mining, and uh, China itself having a, a huge advantage over access to rare earth minerals uh, relative to the United States. And, you know, the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, which is headed by, you know, a Silicon Valley billionaire, um, Eric Schmidt, you know, made some of this stuff pretty explicit. Um, and their report pretty recently about this being, um, you know, uh, getting control of these of these minerals and also winning the AI arms race against China, 
uh, was essential to the U.S. maintaining uh, its military and economic hegemony, which, of course, if you're familiar with U.S. empire, is really the driving motive behind uh, most U.S. Uh, government policy. Yeah, but I'm, sh- but I'm sure that they will send troops into Africa, you know, to advance public health. Yeah, well, I mean, I definitely think that's a possibility, but I think also, um, you know, some of the stuff that's underlying a lot of what we see as COVID-19 policy, including things like vaccine passports, there's sort of this um, underlying motive that's obviously there uh, related to, you know, this whole fourth industrial revolution uh, push that we're seeing going on sort of simultaneously uh, with the COVID-19 crisis. And this is actually something that, of course, I have covered pretty extensively, but you've covered uh, to a great extent as well, most recently with Max Blumenthal at uh, at the Gray Zone, um, about the link between vaccine passports and digital ID. And of course, digital ID, uh, even before COVID-19, um, was was mentioned and, and, and flagged really as the cornerstone to being able to bring into effect uh, the fourth industrial revolution, which is essentially a digitalization um, of the entire global economy. But uh, per its, you know, uh, proponents and the people that invented the term, it's more than that. You know, they, they describe it as a merging of the physical, uh, digital and virtual worlds and all of this stuff. Uh, but essentially, it's this digital ID push that's really foundational for that. And in order for this to really happen for uh, the people that are that stand to benefit from that huge uh, shift, this industrial revolution, um, as it's as it's being called, the vast majority of the world needs to be involved um, in these digital ID systems. And some of these have been tested out in Africa well before COVID nineteen. Uh, there's the uh, Gavi Wellness Pass, which is a team up uh, between uh, the Gavi Vaccine Alliance, one of the founders, founding members of ID twenty twenty. Um, with MasterCard, which is now an ID2020 member as well. Um, I forget exactly which part of Africa, but it was to link uh, vaccine credentials and uh, health records uh, with uh, cashless payment systems. Um, And this this pilot program, which was launched before COVID-19, had um, COVID-19 vaccine passports uh, rolled into it (laughs) as it was being piloted. So uh, since you've written extensively on this uh, on this topic, how do you uh, see the link between uh, digital ID um, and vaccine passports and and how um, this push to for, you know, that we've been talking about this push to vaccinate um, the African continent, uh, presumably against their will because of the quote unquote vaccine hesitancy issue? You know, how does this how does this all connect? The military surveillance firm and NATO contractor Thales, or Thales, I'm not sure exactly how you pronounce it, they say outright on their website um, that vaccine passports are a precursor to digital ID. So that kind of, you know, sets the tone of, of why the military industrial complex and, you know, Western governments and um, multinational corporations, where their heads are at. They're not saying that it'll, it's a precursor to great health. No, it's a precursor to a digital ID. A vaccine passport. Um, and, uh, you know, the CEO of iProof, which is a biometric digital ID company, um, they told Forbes that the evolution of vaccine certificates will actually drive the whole field of digital ID in the future. So therefore, it's not just about COVID. This is about something even bigger. Even um, Anne Kavukian, who is the foreign privacy commissioner of Ontario, Canada, 
she described the vaccine passport system that is already active in her province um, as, quote, a new inescapable web of surveillance with geolocation data being tracked everywhere. So what we did in our piece is we looked at, you know, digital ID systems that are currently um, in the works around the world. And some of them have been in the works, actually, for um, a good amount of time, uh, including India's Adhar system, which is, you know, the biggest biometric ID system in the world. Um, it has over a billion people enrolled. And the problems with the system have been widely reported on in, you know, only Indian media, but um, Indian media has reported on how this system is responsible for, you know, um, starvation after starvation after starvation because people, poor people have to get their government services through there. So they get their unemployment, they get their, they get their food rations um, through this Adhar system. And the biometric technology that they use apparently is um, not as good as it should be because people's rations are being sent to other people, people's fingerprints aren't working, their irises aren't scanning correctly, and they're being cut off from their rations. They're being, um, their government services are being ended, and um, people are starving to death. And this has been reported on, you know, time and time again in India's uh, poorer communities. And um, what we did was we looked at um, how the um, the man responsible for the Adhar system, Nidar Kelani, um, I don't know how you pronounce his name, is um, a big um, hero, quote unquote, like this is a direct quote, Bill Gates has called him a hero. Um, and you have um, Kalani also on the board of ID4D, which is a World Bank initiative to bring digital ID to, you know, developing countries. Um, and, you know, we talked about, you know, ID2020 as well, um, which I know you've done reporting on. And, you know, you have Seth Berkeley saying that, you know, 89% of the children and adolescents without identification live in countries supported by Gavi, meaning countries that Gavi gives vaccines to. Um, we are enthusiastic about the potential impact of this program, not just in Bangladesh, but as something we can replicate across Gavi eligible countries. And this is him talking about um, a digital ID program. He wants to bring it to every country that they bring vaccines to. And this is also um, highlighted uh in a paper written by um, the Gates Foundation and ID2020 and USAID partnered biometric ID firm Simprints, a biometric technology firm, um, they wrote a paper called COVID-19 Vaccine Delivery, an Opportunity to Set Up Systems for the Future. Um, and what they argue is that COVID-19 vaccines in the global south could be used as a, quote, potential lever to deliver digital biometric IDs. So when you see this crazy vaccine push to get people vaccinated, it's really, it's less about, in my opinion, to get people vaccinated, but more about um, just finding these people and issuing them IDs and ways to track, you know, officially how, if they've been vaccinated, but unofficially just, you know, plain track and give them also attached to the digital IDs, as you've reported uh, for ID 2020 will be, you know, digital payment cards. So now you're tracking not only their health status, but their payments and how they spend their money and what they spend their money on. Um, and this has been, you know, um, happening in the global South for some time. The 
the digital IDs. And now it's finally, you see it coming to the global north um, with vaccine passports uh, happening everywhere. And it's just another form of, you know, surveillance. And you have, uh, we, we talked about the M-Pesa, which you might have heard of. Um, and it was, you know, trialed in uh, Africa. And it allowed users to digitally deposit, withdraw, transfer, and pay with uh, digital money. And um, the project was, quote, able to make credit and growth capital available to millions of people who have never had access to credit before. And, you know, this is a big part of the, the digital ideas. You know, they frame it similar to how the left frames vaccine inequity. They're saying essentially that the global south does not have what they deserve. And what they deserve is a way to pay for things digitally, which is such a weird thing to say that they need. But, you know, that benefits um, credit card companies and banks. It opens up markets. You know, it allows all these millions of people in Africa to um, to start you to start borrowing money from banks, being indebted to the banks and um, relying on the banks for a number of, of economic uh, and financial needs. And, you know, that's how it's all framed. Um, that's how ID4D frames um, their ideas. They say, you know, these, you know, we have unbanked individuals, quote unquote. It's a new oppressed class of, you know, people who are not set up to the, you know, global banking system. And, you know, we must bring them banking. And it's, it, these are people who, you know, are, some of them are struggling to get, you know, clean drinking water. Um, they're struggling to get, you know, food. And instead, these people are saying they need access to the global monetary system. It does not benefit the people that benefits the system. Um, so in our piece, we kind of looked at how all of these projects, whether it's the World Economic Forum or the World Bank or USAID, the end goal is always to to get them digital biometric IDs, whether it's, you know, vaccine is the is the lever or, you know, there is because they're unbanked is the lever. Well, well, it seems like now the um, the lever, you know, the Trojan horse or whatever's being used to sort of foist this on society, you know, they've decided to use the vaccine passports more than anything else. Um, and I think that's the only way they could really succeed um, in bringing the system to the global north, because previously all these pilot programs were um, that, that you're talking about were used on vulnerable populations. Um, some other examples uh, that you didn't touch on, uh, the World Food Programs, uh, I think it's called Building Blocks in with Syria. Um, Syrian refugees living in Jordan having to scan their irises if they want access uh, to humanitarian aid, uh, being able to get access to food, essentially be, having to choose between access to food and, and surrendering um, their biometric data to this particular UN-backed, um, uh, you know, biometric ID program. Um, another example being um, the iRespond, which is an ID2020 uh, member. Their uh, program for uh, biometric digital identity uh, from uh, beginning with newborns uh, among the uh, uh, stateless communities along the Myanmar-Thai border um, and, and a couple, you know, I mean, and also some of the ones we've talked, you talked about in India and in Africa, you know, these are traditionally, um, people without a lot of political agency. And this is where these groups tend to pilot these programs, um, in the global north, that isn't really the case. And they needed something, 
um, some sort of situation, I think, to be able to get a wide adoption of, um, you know, the sort of what what is going to become is admitted to be a segue into a digital biometric ID system, which was previously attempted in, in the West, but with uh, minimal success. Um, a good example would be Tony Blair when he was prime minister of the UK, really trying to get this biometric digital ID thing uh, rolling back, I think, in 2007. Of course, he's a big proponent for it now, now that he's uh, runs his, his think tank and still influences um, British politics to a significant degree. Uh, but it didn't really catch on. There were concerns about it, right? So um, I think in, in in the global north, you know, they needed some sort of situation to sort of bring about uh, this change. And this is, um, you know, how they're how they're planning to do it. Um, another thing I wanted to bring up, though, um, for people that are interested, there's a World Economic Forum. They call it an insight report. Um, it's from September 2018, entitled Identity in a Digital World, a New Chapter in the Social Contract. And it's a pretty interesting piece because it pretty much, um, you know, years before COVID lays out what this is going to be uh, for. Uh, the first paragraph of its executive summary reads, um, our identity is literally who we are, and as the digital technologies of the fourth industrial revolution advance, our identity is increasingly digital. This digital identity determines what product, services, and information we can access, or conversely, what is closed off to us. So essentially they frame from the get-go, digital identity is something that um, the people that control the digital identity system will be able to use to control your access to products, services, and also information, which is pretty interesting, specifically in the context of how um, vaccine passports are being rolled out um, and this whole digital identity thing, how it's also um, connected if, for people familiar with my work on the World Economic Forum Partnership Against uh, Cybercrime, how this is the foundation for laws being put out in the UK right now, like David's Law, the Online Safety Law, um, and all of this stuff that want to link government-issued IDs, specifically digital IDs, to your social media accounts. Um, if you go to page 10 of this 2018 Insight Report from the WEF, uh, it actually says that, uh, that digital identity is the center uh, is the central point for your ability to access uh, healthcare, uh, electronic health records, um, vaccine registry, your ability to access food, to access financial services, to access social media platforms and the internet, uh, to access uh, travel and mobility, which of course is a, has been a, one of the main functionalities of the vaccine passports as they've been rolled out. Essentially, that's conditioning uh, your access for particularly vulnerable people to uh, things necessary to continue living uh, to your participation in a biometric digital ID program. Uh, and then, of course, e-government and e-commerce services uh, also tied into this as well. Um, and, and, you know, this is really um, the programs you're talking about in combination with the vaccine passport stuff. Uh, really, this is this is where it all plans to go. It's very uh, central uh, to to this uh, fourth industrial revolution um, and and the ambitions around that. Um, and it's uh, it's it's pretty far reaching and pretty far developed. And ID twenty twenty is a key part of this. Um, but I think one of the reasons va vaccination has been so tied into this is because of the role 
um, of the Gavi Vaccine Alliance as one of the founding members um, and um, one of the main uh, participants in a lot of uh, these pilot programs that have come out of that alliance since its launch with the Gavi MasterCard Wellness Pass um, being one example. Um, but talking about sort of the role of military contractors, as your piece does, um, the one I mentioned earlier about iRespond, which is an ID2020 partner, uh, their particular um, pilot program for refugee newborns on the Myanmar-Thai border uh, that precedes COVID-19. Um, the guy that's president and chairman of iRespond is pretty interesting and I think gives a pretty uh, clear, uh, sort of like a, a microcosm, I guess you could say, of the forces that are involved in this push more broadly. Uh, so his name is Eric Rasmussen. Uh, he's president and chairman of the board of iRespond. Uh, Rasmussen is also a professor at Singularity University, which is all about artificial intelligence, the fourth industrial revolution. It's backed by Google. All the futurists, transhumanist crazy people like Ray Kurzweil are there. Um, but he's also chairman of the board at a, a global NGO called Instead that's all about humanitarian informatics uh, around health and resource-poor economies. And they're partnered with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, the U.S. CDC, Google, and UNICEF. Uh, Rasmussen is also CEO of a profit-for-purpose company called Infinitum Humanitarian Systems, which is similar uh, to Instead, and it's focused on humanitarian informatics. Uh, but they work with USAID, the State Department, and U.S. military intelligence, um, and also uh, the U.S. defense contractor and intelligence contractor, Booz Allen Hamilton. Uh, so that's fun. And Rasmussen, before he had all of these fun roles, uh, worked as the main uh, investigator in humanitarian informatics for the U.S. military at DARPA and had multiple wartime deployments to Bosnia, Iraq, and Afghanistan. So there seems to be a, a vein of the military running throughout all of this. Um, and if you see the COVID-19 vaccination campaign um, as something meant to sort of bring about this uh, digital ID system, which um, I think is a belief that you and I uh, both share, it makes sort of their heavy involvement uh, in, co in the COVID-19 vaccination campaign through warp speed and other things a bit less surprising. Yeah, the military's role in both the development of the vaccine and the rollout of vaccine passports should concern anyone who is wary of the U.S. military. In part two of our um, series on vaccine passports, we looked at MITRE, which is um, a nonprofit corporation uh, almost led entirely by military intelligence professionals. Um, and sustained uh, with sizable contracts uh, with the Department of Defense, the FBI, the national security sector. Um, and they have been responsible for some of the most invasive surveillance technology in use by U.S. spy agencies today. Um, its products include a system built for the FBI, which captures individuals' fingerprints from images posted on social yeah. media sites. Mm -hmm. Um, so they are just, you know, neck deep in surveillance tools and they are, you know, playing a critical role in the rollout of vaccine passports in the U.S. through the vaccine credential initiative. Um, so and they're also, you know, um, partnered with Palantir and all these other good, 
you know, CIA-linked military intelligence companies. Yeah, that's through the, uh, the what's it called, the CHC COVID, COVID-19 Healthcare Coalition or something. Uh, that's, yeah. that's like MITRE's program, and Palantir's a member of that. Google, all the big Silicon Valley companies, a bunch of health insurance companies, uh, uh, several universities in the U.S., uh, a bunch of different organizations, and it's all about... Uh, harnessing data and Palantir, of course, which is one of the most you probably can't be more connected to the to the CIA than uh, than Palantir uh, from their origins, uh, you know, onward. Um, you know, they've they've really been the uh, storing most of the COVID nineteen health data for HHS in the U.S., but also the NHS in the U.K., um, which is which is pretty interesting. Um, so a lot of very shady. Um, uh, entities involved there. And of course, Palantir has a very major role in surveillance. Um, I mean, it's it's a contractor to all 17, or I guess it's 18 now, U.S. intelligence agencies, um, and, and is, is intimately um, in, involved in some rather suspect surveillance stuff that they do. And that's pretty evident by the fact that you can label people in the Palantir system with all these different types of labels, but one of the labels is subversives. Um, so that, that implies good things happen there, doesn't it? So, um, it, all of this takes on a much more, um, uh, I guess, uh, is much more concerning when you consider that this whole system, that these entities like Palantir and MITRE and all of this, um, are helping build is going to condition your ability to access essential services or not. And the way this is played out, as you point out in your, um, in your article, uh, with very increasingly vulnerable people being deprived of their food and actually starving to death, um, as a consequence of, of the, the functioning or rather malfunctioning, um, of these systems, that certainly does not, um, bode well, um, at the very least at all. Um, and, um, you know, the fact that they're so intent, despite the lack of logical reasoning behind it in terms of, you know, we have to vaccinate the whole African continent and this these uh, overture, overtures that are basically implying that the U.S. is going to try and send the U.S. military uh, into Africa to get, you know, needles and arms and all of this stuff. Uh, you know, it, it definitely starts to look pretty nasty um, but as you try and step out and, and see sort of the, the bigger picture of what's of what's going on here. Um, and, you know, this is part of a, a broader push, even beyond the vaccines and digital ID, sort of some stuff that I, I've covered recently with um, uh, natural asset corporations and this global financial alliance for net zero and stuff like this that is all focused on reimagining uh, the IMF and and the World Bank and all of these groups to sort of... Um, force the developing world to adopt certain policies or receive certain investments that are deemed friendly to the fourth industrial revolution agenda, but specifically certain billionaires and certain, you know, multi-million, multi-billion dollar uh, private banks and hedge funds and, and equity firms and stuff. Um, you know, th there's a lot going on here and it's really disappointing to see progressives, uh, the bigger name progressives, I guess you could say a lot of them sort of asleep at the wheel um, when it comes to this stuff. But, you know, when I look at people like, <laughs> I, I don't know, like uh, Noam Chomsky, uh, his interview with Primo Nutmeg saying some really crazy stuff 
um, about the unvaccinated, uh, but also his, you know, his track record with topics such as like 9-11, the 2008 financial crisis, uh, the John F. Kennedy assassination, even his take on the uh, Jeffrey Osteen scandal and all of this stuff. It makes you wonder how many of these um, bigger, quote unquote, progressive names are, are gatekeepers or just people who who are afraid, but regardless, you know, the people that are uh, rubber stamping this and framing um, what these these ulterior agendas sort of as, you know, altruistic and, and progressive and all of this stuff are actually, you know, it seems to me um, causing uh, a lot a lot more damage than I think they realize because fundamentally a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about today um, seems to point to a, a very uh, dark, uh, imperialist uh, agenda uh, for uh, the developing world, specifically Africa, um, and it's just <laughs> it's just not being uh, not being seen for what it is by people that are normally quite good at that. Of course, I mean when you see you know the military intelligence apparatus, you know getting behind everyone getting these digital IDs. If the first thing in, in, into your head isn't surveillance and control, then you know your head's not in the right place. It's definitely not public health. That's, you know, that's for certain. And, um, when you, when you see who's behind, you know, even warp speed was, you know, the vaccine itself was, was a, you know, military project. Um, and then the vaccine passports, another military project. And it's very rarely that the military does anything, um, for public health. And I just want to go back to one thing very quickly. Um, when we were talking about ID 2020, um, Elizabeth Ranieris, um, she was on the board of ID 2020 and she's the founding director of Notre Dame's IBM technology ethics lab. Um, she, well, that sounds uh, like a fun place. <laughs> it does sound, it sounds like a fun place, but she actually resigned from ID 2020. Um, uh, and she, she resigned citing, you know, um, privacy concerns, and she warned that as dominant technology, this is at a, um, she warned the, this is at a Senate hearing. She warned that as dominant technology and surveillance companies pursue new revenue streams in healthcare and financial services, privately owned and operated ID systems with profit maximizing business models threaten privacy, security, and other fundamental rights of individuals and communities. So this is someone who works for ID 2020. And I guess she was maybe too positive in the beginning. She thought they were going to maybe do something. I don't, I don't know what her initial um, theory about ID 2020 was, but she stepped down citing privacy concerns and had that to say. So I think that's very telling that, you know, she left, a, you know, a profitable position like that to say that. ID 2020 from the very beginning had some shady stuff about it, um, in my opinion. <laughs> um, but one thing about it that I think deserves a lot more uh, coverage is this presentation that was given at their inaugural summit that was hosted at the UN, um, I guess back when they formally launched in like 2016. And essentially it's this lady named Monique Morrow and, and some other people on her, uh, her particular team that put this presentation together. And they basically link digital identity, you know, sort of as uh, the same way that World Economic Forum report I mentioned earlier sort of lays it all out. Um, all these different services you'll be able to access with digital ID at the center, but they equate digital ID at the center with something they call freedom as a service, like a rebranding of freedom, not really as a human right, but freedom as a service. 
um, now. And that, uh, or at least in this system, would be that, that your um, ability to enjoy um, or participate, you know, have certain freedoms is is now a service and not like a guaranteed uh, right either granted to you uh, by a constitution or, uh, or, you know, a religious, you know, uh, worldview or, or whatever, you know, it's, it's not a guaranteed thing. It's now a service that you have to, um, meet the necessary requirements to be able to enjoy that service. I mean, that is like a huge, um, a huge shift, um, in, in human, like in, in governance, um, in human society, uh, that has been promoted by this group from the very beginning. But I think it's very illuminating, especially with what we're seeing now and that there's a lot more awareness and a lot more, uh, research having been done on these particular groups. You know, it's pretty clear that that's really where this is ultimately going. Um, you know, uh, and, and like that, uh, WEF report says, you know, it's about, uh, what you'll be able to access and what you won't be able to access. And who determines if you have the quote unquote freedom uh, to access certain pieces of information or certain services or certain places? Uh, the people that run these systems and their public private partnerships, um, you know, developed by some of these private companies or uh, like Simprints, I Respond, uh, Trust Stamp are some of the ones that are, that are teamed up here. Um, but, you know, also in coordination with these uh, military intelligence contractors we've been talking about, and also the state itself. So, you know, it's um, it, it's a really complicated situation, which has, which is just ripe for uh, tyranny, <laughs> for lack of a better word. I mean, it's just really um, over the top and, and increasingly dangerous. And my concern is that we are uh, really sleepwalking into this. So, you know, I, I don't know how many of the... <laughs> uh, uh, progressive leaning, um, vaccine inequity, uh, the, the promoters of that uh, inequity narrative, probably, probably not many of them, um, listen to this podcast. Um, but I think, you know, maybe some people who engage with them do. Uh, and I think, you know, our best bet really is to sort of highlight some of the things we've been talking about particularly in the latter segment of the, of this podcast um, about the digital ID push and some of these more, um, you know, this apparent uh, push from people like, you know, Andy Slavitt and some of the stuff that's emerging out of the Omicron variant narrative that um, someone needs to be sent to put needles in arms in Africa uh, that aren't from Africa. Um, you know, there's definitely, uh, we need to uh, encourage these people um at least because there have to be some honest actors in there. They can't, you know, all be gatekeepers. Some people uh, make that argument. But I think uh, we definitely need to start uh, pushing them to reexamine the issue. Yeah, definitely. When you see, you know, on Twitter, all of these, you know, blue check people who have, you know, consistently been on the right side of, you know, the war in Syria, um, the war in Iraq, um you know, different pushes to leave Afghanistan. They've always supported it. Um, and then when it comes to this, they like send in the troops. So, you know, the, eventually, and it can't be that hard to make them see how, you know, something like sending in the troops or, you know, advocating something in America for a country that is thousands of miles away in Africa or in Latin America um, or in, you know, South Asia is not, you know, it's not a good look for an anti-imperialist and it's also probably not um, the correct take. Yeah. Well, I couldn't agree more with that. And obviously that should be <laughs> pretty clear given what 
uh, you and I have been um, discussing today. But um, uh, for people that aren't familiar with Jeremy's work, I really consider, uh, I, I would ask you to consider following him um, on Twitter and social media because he has provided a lot of really great pushback uh, to these arguments as they have um, come out um, and a lot of other really good information um, as it relates to um, a lot of things going on right now, whether it's digital um, IDs or, um, you know, uh, aspects of the COVID-19 vaccine rollout. Um, so, Jeremy, uh, for those uh, that have been listening and may not have been familiar with your work, how can people uh, follow you um, and support you? I would just ask that you follow me on Twitter at um, Wilfredo Jeremy. And if you're looking how to spell that, I'm sure it'll be in the podcast information. Yes, it will. <laughs> All right. So uh, thanks so much, Jeremy, for your time uh, and for talking about these important issues that, well, eh, may get us some hate mail. But at this point, it's really uh, unavoidable to talk about, you know, some of these issues uh, that are that are ongoing um, and to... Uh, bring some of this information to light because a lot of stuff that we've covered today, specifically this vaccine equity or versus inequity discussion, um, you know, has really just been pretty absent um, more often than not. So I think this is um, uh, pretty vital information. So for those that are, um, you know, <laughs> that are listening that feel that way, um, I would encourage you to share this podcast around um, once it becomes publicly uh, available. Um, because uh, for people that are familiar with the podcast, you probably know. Uh, that it's uh, paywalled for the first couple of days on Rockfin and also available to Unlimited Hangout members. And after that is available on pretty much every podcasting app. Um, also, as I mentioned, my previous episode with Dr. Meryl Nass, uh, this is probably going to be my last podcast because I am going to be going uh, on maternity leave. I am going to be uh, having a little person any day now. So I will not be uh, <laughs> able to do a regular podcast for at least... Uh, a period of time. Uh, if you are on the unlimited hangout mailing list, you will be informed uh, when that changes. Uh, and so I would encourage people listening that would like information as to when uh, maternity leave will be uh, concluding um, uh, for me and, and things like that to please go to unlimitedhangout.com and sign up for our mailing list. Yeah, so that's it for today. Thanks for everyone for listening and a special thank you to people who support the podcast and catch you in the next episode. Thanks, everyone. 